You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. From CFUV 101.9 FM, I'm your host, Maureen Chow. Today, I have Devin here with me. Devin, tell me who you are and what you do here at UVic. Good morning, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a PhD student in curriculum and instruction, and I've just completed my first year at University of Victoria. Curriculum and instruction is also known as early childhood education. Is that correct? Well, actually, um, curriculum and instruction is a department, and early childhood education is my focus area. Perfect. And tell me what life looks like as a PhD student in early childhood education. Well, it's been quite a year. Um, I arrived on the island at the end of August, just in time for graduate student orientation. And I soon learned that every department has different requirements for coursework. And in curriculum and instruction, we need to take two required courses and two electives for a total of four courses. So I ended up taking more than that because I wanted to have a broader knowledge base going into candidacy in my research. So in my first term, I took three courses. Second term, I took three courses. And then I completed my studies with a spring-summer session course that just wrapped up at the end of June. So now I've started a process known as candidacy. So that is um, where I formed a committee. There's three people on my committee, and I have two big questions that I need to answer through 25-page papers. One question focuses on methodology, research design methods that I might use in my upcoming research. And I believe, I haven't got my next question yet, but I think it's going to probably focus on theory and a literature review. And if I pass both of those questions and then defend my work, I will officially be a PhD candidate who is um, deemed prepared to embark on my own program of research. Exciting stuff. And with that, let's backtrack just a little bit. Did you do your undergrad and your master's here or was it elsewhere? Well, I'm from Manitoba, so I did my Bachelor of Education degree in early years education at Brandon University in Brandon, Manitoba. And then before I even graduated officially, I started pursuing my master's degree in special education. So that was also at Brandon University. So I completed my master's degree in 2009. And at that point, I was completely done with university. I knew that maybe doing a PhD was kind of a far off distant dream. And I I knew that I needed to make a decision about that before I got too much older. So that was why in 2017, I started looking for the right university, the right supervisor, the right program, not even 50% sure that I would even accept if I got in. But in the end, I found an amazing supervisor and there's no, I don't think a more beautiful campus in Canada than University of Victoria. So everything just worked out and I ended up here. What were some of the other factors or more specific factors that made you go with UVic? Well, the size of the university, um, the really good like national reputation. I think UVic was ranked number three overall in McLean's this past year. So that was definitely a factor. And um, maybe this isn't a really good reason for choosing a PhD program, but Victoria has a really vibrant yoga scene and yoga is a huge part of my life. And coming from Manitoba, where I've always experienced super cold, brutal winters, I was really, really eager to live somewhere that barely ever saw snow. 
But yoga must be great as a de-stress because you're, you've taken on a lot. Oh, yoga has been my salvation. And sometimes when I get really, really caught up in my work, for example, in the first term, we had to write a 25-page paper. And it was the first paper I'd ever written of that size. I finished it. I was just completely wrung out. And I was ready to move on to my next assignment. But like the thought of starting another massive paper literally brought me to tears. And I just thought, OK, I just need to take time for myself and go to yoga. So I hadn't been to yoga that day, went to Moksha, took in a, like a family fantastic yin class as I was laying there in Shavasana this brilliant idea for my next paper popped into my head so I've really learned that if I take the time to care for myself I, I totally reap the reward it's not lost time it makes me a much more effective and um, what would the word be I don't want to say intelligent but certainly certainly a more capable student when I take time to care for myself of course in that way you're not just stuck in a rut yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It gets everything moving, not just my body. Right. And in between 09 and starting your PhD, I know that a lot happened for you in terms of career. What were you doing with teaching kindergarten? And also I noticed that you have some work with Microsoft as well. I began my teaching career in 1999, and I'd always wanted to be an early years teacher. In Manitoba, we considered the early years kindergarten to grade four. So from 1999 to 2008, I taught grade one and two, which I absolutely loved, teaching children to read. There's no challenge like it, but it's also incredibly rewarding. And then in 2008, I had the opportunity to make the transition to kindergarten. And I completed a master's degree in special education. So if I took on kindergarten half time, I could do kindergarten to grade eight, what we call resource in Manitoba or special ed or inclusive learning or lots of different names for that. So in 2008, I transitioned into a half time special ed, half time kindergarten role. And I found my, my true love in kindergarten. And yeah, the last 10 years were a time of huge growth in my career. In 2008, I became involved with the Microsoft Innovative Experts Educator Program, which gave me access to like a worldwide community of, of educators all over the globe, which has been incredible, those connections, amazing professional learning opportunities, um, both in person and also online. And Microsoft's travel opportunities for teachers are second to none. With Microsoft, I traveled to Hong Kong and Singapore in 2008, Prague in 2012, Barcelona the following year, and as well as lots of opportunities to present at conferences all over Canada. So Microsoft has done so much for my teaching practice. And how does someone just start getting involved with Microsoft? How did you get that opportunity? Oh, well, it's a little bit more, uh, it's a different process now than it was back in 2008. But now, if teachers are interested, they can do something called a self-nomination, where they apply to be a Microsoft Innovative Expert. And I believe they have to create a video presentation and answer some questions. They upload it. That was in July. I think the deadline's passed for this year. And then teachers are selected based on, you know, different criteria. So... With me, it was a little bit different. I had to actually create an innovative teaching project that I did with one of my, my colleagues and best friends and submitted that, that innovative project, and we were selected that way. It's a little bit different now, but still incredibly worthwhile. And would you say that that helps you now as a student again? Oh, very much. It's really interesting to be on the other, on the other side of it. I've had such a strong focus on using 
technology tools to support teaching and learning, with the learning being, of course, more focused on my students. I use technology all the time for my own professional learning by participating in webinars, online learning communities, Twitter, that kind of thing. But now I'm 100% a student again, and the first thing I did was figure out how I could use Microsoft OneDrive and OneNote to organize my life. And that has just made a huge difference to my success as a student. I use OneNote to organize all of my course materials. I use OneDrive to keep track of you know, everything I've written, all my articles that I'm, I'm working on, those kinds of things. So Microsoft tools have been really key for me as a student. On the topic of technology, I know that you actually make your own podcast as well. Can you tell me a little bit about what goes into that? Yeah, um, I think maybe back in 2000. 10, I started my own blog called Kindergarten Diva, and I just loved the title of the blog so much that that is what's kept me blogging over all these years, was I thought, I can't lose this great blog name. So I have a blog that I try and post on about once a month, different topics, a lot of things, of course, about early years education, but yoga, wellness, travel shows up there from time to time, too. And... This past winter, I was taking a class with Dr. Kathy Sanford, and one of our assignments was to create a podcast about our future research in just really easy, jargon-free terms. So that provided the impetus for me to figure out how to podcast, because it had always been in the back of my mind that I wanted to create a kindergarten diva podcast. So I was really fortunate. I paired up with one of my good friends in the PhD program. We interviewed each other. That became the first two episodes of my kindergarten diva podcast, and I think I have six now. So it's on iTunes as well as Google Play if you want to check it out. That is super cool. It's not, I don't think ever on this show has someone who makes podcasts come in to be with someone who makes podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious about some of your projects within education as well. I mean, as in your education. Can you elaborate a little bit on some of those? So projects more now that I've been at University of Victoria? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the first kind of research project I was involved in here, I guess I could say I'm involved in three. My first one was I needed to find an elective for the second term, and there was an interdepartmental or cross-departmental, I don't know what you call it, um, research internship class. And I decided like that would be such a great opportunity for me to get experience doing real research that might actually make a difference. So I signed up for that class. It was a wonderful decision. And how it works is Ministry of Children and Family Development, MCFD. They, um, their staff kind of generates a list of research questions or important research topics that they would like addressed. And then those topics come to the students in the class, and we kind of rank our first, second, and third choices for what we'd like to work on. And because of my long history in early years and early childhood, there was a question about universal screening, so developmental screening practices for children entering foster care. So that question totally piqued my interest, as well as a friend and colleague of mine, her name's Melissa Nada. So the two of us decided that we would really, really love to work on that. Unfortunately, our professors agreed, and that was our research topic. So we began by, you know, talking to our sponsors at MCFD to get a really clear idea of what they were looking for. And we discovered that what was really important to them was something called a jurisdictional scan, where we looked at practices all across Canada for what different child welfare agencies are doing for when young children come into foster care to check where they're at in terms of typical child development. So we did a jurisdictional scan all across Canada. 
We also access some information from Washington, just because it's so near to British Columbia, as well as Australia, New Zealand, and Scotland. So we compiled a big jurisdictional scan that was not without its challenges. We learned that almost no one will answer their email or want to talk to you. <laughs> and even if they do, lots of these questions have to go through their own research department. So we only had a three-month turnaround. And it was really frustrating because so many answers started flooding in our last week because we were putting our final paper and presentation together. But but in the end, we were able to compile a pretty, pretty rich and accurate picture of what's going on with universal developmental screening for young children in foster care. So that was that was really, really rewarding. We also did a literature review. So we just looked like what's out there in the existing research and literature for universal screening for children in foster care. And then we were able to do um, an actual like an in-person presentation at the new MCFD offices on Superior. Um, that was a really great experience. There was about 50 people there. And then, of course, it was also streamed out online so people all over the province could listen. We made a podcast so anyone who was interested could actually listen to what we found out while, you know, driving to work or, or walking. So just to make our, really to mobilize our knowledge and make it more accessible to a larger population and then we compiled about a 20-page report that we submitted to MCFD. So that was a really fantastic um, opportunity. I'm really grateful for it and anytime you can do real work that makes a real difference for people, I think that's you know the absolute best when you're at the university level. And what were some of the most fascinating findings that you came across? Um, well, I think it stands to reason, like Canada is a vast country, there's a great deal of difference and disparity among our provinces, and that's absolutely true in terms of practices in universal screening. There is huge differences in what's happening. Only British Columbia, we, we learned, has a dedicated screening program for children coming into care. I believe every other province just relies on the regular screening measures that all children can access, which are generally administered by public health nurses. And what difference do you think it makes in British Columbia? Well, it's only happening in two regions in British Columbia, Simon Fraser and Vancouver Coastal. And I just think it makes sure these kids don't slip through the cracks. Because when children come into care, they don't come into care because they've had optimal early childhood experiences. They generally come into care because they've experienced a fair amount of conflict or chaos or or neglect. So it's really important we find out where these little people are at so that we can get the services in place and move them forward. So I think when there's dedicated screening programs for children in care, there's it's less likely that they're going to slip through the cracks. Whereas if we're relying on just the regular like public health programs, if these kids are bouncing between foster homes, if they're between biological parents or, you know, in a different care situation then back into foster care, I think it's really likely that we're going to miss out on screening them. So I think a dedicated program makes a big difference. And earlier you mentioned candidacy. Mm -hmm. So if this were to go through, which I'm sure it will, <laughs> fingers, fingers crossed, and toes crossed, what are some of the things that you would be looking at when you're doing independent work? Oh, well, I'm looking at two questions. I'm from Manitoba. I'm from a little tiny town of 200 people. So very rural. We're about an hour and a half from the American border. So we're in southwestern Manitoba. And I'm really interested in finding out more about how teachers are using technology with young children in rural and urban Manitoban settings. And what is teachers' purpose for using technology with young children?
So there's not a lot of research coming out of Manitoba, especially focusing on technology. Um, one of my mentors, Dr. Mike Nada at Brandon University, he's collaborated with Dr. Rennie Redekop at University of Manitoba. They've compiled um, two edited collections of teacher stories of how they're using technology um, in the classroom and then their second volume was on how teachers are using technology for making and coding. So that's a really rich source of information but there's not a lot of early years examples. So I'm, I'm really curious to dive deep into what's happening in early childhood. So I'm, I'm considering that junior kindergarten to grade two in Manitoba. How are teachers using technology and why are they using technology? So I'm planning to use um, a case study research design and hopefully work with four classrooms, two urban, two rural, collect data over the course of the school year and just hopefully paint a really rich picture of what's going on in rural Manitoba and urban Manitoba. Maybe it will, I'll kind of generate the kind of data that lends itself to comparison. Maybe I'll find out the technology is being used differently in rural settings versus urban settings. Maybe I won't. So I'm just, I'm really curious to see what I discover. If I were able to secure research funding, currently I'm applying for a SHIRT grant. I don't think it's very likely I will get a SHIRT grant as a first year PhD student, but I'm trying anyway, because it's of course a good experience. Um, I would be really, really interested to study a community in Northern Manitoba where they're really geographically disadvantaged, isolated. I would be really fascinated to see if technology is being used differently in those settings. I'm sure you've met so many educators across the globe. What are some of the most effective ways of technology use in classrooms, in your opinion? I'm really passionate about a couple of things. The first one is using technology to create, not passively consume. And something I see that is really troubling to me is teachers will think that they're infusing technology because they have iPads in the classroom and maybe the children are practicing their sight words by using sight word bingo, like an app. All that is is a substitute for uh, an actual real game. Tangible of, bingo. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's just substitution. That's not transformative use. That child is not creating anything. They're a fairly passive consumer of something. Whereas when... I use technology in my classroom, like I'm not saying I hit that mark 100% of the time, but I strive for my children to use technology to create. So they're maybe creating their own ebooks to show their understanding of something. Maybe they're creating and captioning an image to demonstrate their learning. Maybe they're working collaboratively with their friends to generate a video. So also coding, I do a lot of coding in kindergarten because it develops such great logical and creative thinking skills. So that's also an example of children using technology to create and build something new rather than passively consume. So the whole create consume thing is a big deal for me. The other thing that's really, really huge for me is collaboration. I believe that technology is, um, it's such a cliche, but it really does turn our classroom walls into windows. It's a way for us to connect with classrooms experts all over the globe. I participate in all kinds of like Skype virtual field trips. So one day, Microsoft had set up this partnership with a research station off the coast of Florida and my class Skyped in and my kids were able to totally go along for the ride as these divers visited like this amazing underwater marine environment. Um, we also used Skype to connect with scientists at the Churchill Research Station so we could ask them questions about polar bears. So just things that wouldn't be available to my students. So using technology to connect with experts and partners. We have a partner classroom in a community 
45 minutes away from us. My best friend, Leah Olbach, used to teach grade one there. She's since become a teacher leader. And we had an ongoing collaborative partnership that we, um, we connected through Skype, Google Hangouts, Twitter, Instagram, and then we would also have real life connections and we engaged in project-based learning collaboratively through technology. So I think it's all about collaboration and creation. Absolutely. And with what you mentioned about coding or starting the creating process with technology, obviously now that's becoming more and more commonplace in workplaces for adults. Do you think that introducing it early is a major advantage for those students? Well, I certainly do, because when I started hearing about coding, first of all, I didn't really realize what it was. And then I understood that it was basically computer programming. It's when we give directions to a computer or an app or a device to tell it what to do. So once I understood that, I felt a little more confident. But I was like, I'm not good at math and science. I can't, I can't code. And I mean, that was my attitude after years of like negative math and science and computer programming experiences. When we introduce these things to young children, they don't know that it has the potential to be difficult. They don't have Roblox blocks in place telling them that they can't do it. Plus, it develops really, really great skills. Like in kindergarten, coding develops an understanding of positional language and angles, sequencing, step-by-step -step directions, problem solving. So I think there's really two reasons to code with young children. One is to introduce them to it before they have a mindset telling them they can't. And the second reason is because it develops important skills that will support their academics in other areas. And after the PhD, do you think you'll go back to teaching so you can implement all of this into classrooms? Or do you see yourself mentoring? Well, I'm returning to my classroom in September. I'm going to teach kindergarten every other day. In Manitoba, kindergarten is half time, so this will work beautifully. And then I hope on the alternate days to work on my own research and later on dissertation writing. So that will probably be what I'm doing for the next three or four years of my life if I make it through candidacy. Um, after that, the reason I pursued PhD studies was ultimately I'd like to be a professor in a faculty of education. I've been really fortunate to teach sessionally in the undergrad program at Brandon University. And although I've always been very oriented to little children, I discovered that I really like working with, with big people too. And I've done lots of presenting at conferences and professional learning with and for teachers, but I'd never actually been their teacher. So I discovered that, you know, I love little people, but I love big people too. And you can probably tell from listening to this, I have some really definite ideas about what should be happening in early years education, and I'm really passionate about lots of things. And I think the biggest way that I can affect change is by training teachers. So ultimately, I'd like to work in a faculty of education, but I mean, I'm open to lots of other opportunities too. So I don't know, I'll just, I'll just see what happens. And right now with technology changing so quickly and with new things popping up every day, more frequently than every day, really. Where do you see yourself in terms of keeping up with kind of trends and trying out new technologies as we progress? I think that's one way that teachers get really overwhelmed is they're like, there's just so many new things all the time. How can I ever keep up? And like I always tell teachers, we need to be really deliberate and intentional in our use of technology. Like 
I don't try every new thing that comes along. I Sometimes I sit back and watch and see what other teachers are doing first. Other times I look at it critically and I think, okay, is this a fit for my classroom practice? Does this meet some kind of need for my students or for me? I'll play around with it a little bit on my own and then I'll try it out with my kids. I think lots of people believe that in order for them to use it in an educational setting, they have to know it inside and out. Whereas I think I just need to know enough to get started and my kids will figure it out. And my students know that that they might know more than Mrs. Caldwell and that's <laughs> absolutely amazing. And I will say, oh look, we're getting into you know coding loops in this app that we're using. I don't really understand how to do it yet, but so-and-so is an expert. So if you have any questions, you come over and ask this child because they know. I'm all about being a facilitator of learning instead of like the, you know, the all-knowing yeah. no, all <laughs> expert. So I think teachers just need to have a willingness to get started, to be deliberate and intentional and make decisions about what will work for them in their classroom practice and, and not be afraid. Like what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm curious about how the response has been within the education system in terms of maybe other educators or sometimes parents as well. Has there been any reluctancy to integrate technology in your experience or have people generally been open-minded? That's a really good question. And even though in situations like this, I end up talking about technology a lot um, and it might sound like I use technology 24-7 in my classroom or in my personal life. That's not the case at all. Um, I really advocate a very balanced approach and using technology in a way that's suitable to a child's level of development. And I explain that to parents. Like lots of kids come to us having spent tons of hours on a screen and they don't need more time on a screen in an enriching early childhood program. So when I you know, use technology is because we're doing something that couldn't be accomplished otherwise. So at the start of the year, I meet with parents. I tell them the things that we might be doing throughout the school year. I tell them why. I tell them about how I will keep their child safe and how I will teach their child to keep themselves safe when they use technology. And I found parents to be incredibly supportive. And I have like a secret Facebook group that all my families are part of that we communicate on throughout the day. All my parents have my mobile number. They know they can text or call me at any time. And I just think keeping communication flowing all the time stops um, little problems from turning into big problems. So yeah, there's sometimes, you know, just being really um, direct and transparent in my communication with parents regarding technology is important. And then with other teachers too. Um, teachers can feel really intimidated and reluctant too. And they, like I've had so many teachers say to me, the only technology a five-year-old needs is a pencil. You know, like things like that. And you know, there, yeah, maybe there's some truth to that, but I think we need to, to have a balanced approach and think about what that child's going to need to be successful in his or her future as well and the learning opportunities that we can create by using some newer, less traditional methods. On that note, what do you think of technology misuse, especially for younger children? Well, I think it's all about, all about the education and I like we, we talk about digital citizenship. Um, there's a researcher in um, the Faculty of Education, Dr. Valerie Irvine. She talks about digital hygiene. How as parents we teach our kids to like brush their teeth and wash their faces and you know 
go to the bathroom, all of those different things. And that that's hygiene. But do we teach digital hygiene the whole way along? And she really advocates that approach, which I think makes a ton of sense. And it's totally the way I approach technology use with my kindergarten children. I talk about it all the time. Like, look, Mrs. Cobble is going to log into this site and I have a password, but it's a secret password. Like, could I, could I tell someone my password? No, that would never be a good idea. But if you have a password, could you tell your mom or dad or, you know, your grandma or grandpa or your caregiver? Yeah, you could. And that would be all right. But could you tell your friend? No. So just teaching those things step by step as we're using the technology is, is really important. With that, in your time as a teacher, have you found that children are excited to use technology, generally speaking? I would assume yes, but have you maybe had experiences otherwise? Um, I don't know. When I present, I have this really great quotation I often share that say, like, yes, children love technology, but they also love Lego and mud puddles and scented markers, too. And I mean... Yeah, kids are excited to use technology, but they're equally excited to, you know, mix primary colors with an eyedropper in an ice cube tray and see the new secondary colors they can create. They're maybe even more excited to build with Lego or dress up in the playhouse loft. So yeah, children are excited to use technology, but at a young age, they're pretty excited for all kinds of, of new experiences. So I think as long as those experiences are appropriate to their, their level of development, um, that's what's really important. What are some of the most rewarding aspects of the work that you do, whether it's within the University of Victoria or in kindergarten classrooms? I know it's for me, um, it's any time I feel like I've made a difference for real people, that's that's hugely rewarding. So when I worked on that MCFD research project with my friend Melissa, when we heard back from, you know, real social workers and caseworkers saying, like, thank you so much. This is so useful. And and then um, this woman named Heidi Village, I don't remember her title anymore, said, like, we're taking your report as recommendations to ask for more funding to scale up our universal screening program in BC. We need this province-wide, and your report just gave us the evidence we needed. Like, that made me feel so, so good. And... Like, same as when I work with little people, when I feel like I made a difference for a child or their family, or one of our project-based learning experiences made a difference. Like, for example, just last year, we did, like, a huge project about climate change and raising awareness and helping polar bears, and my little ones worked with Leah's grade one class and my big kids at Brandon University, and we did this huge, like, demonstration and walk, and we raised, like, nearly $300 to donate to World Wildlife life funds efforts surrounding climate change so when I feel like I've made a difference for a child or a family or an organization that's what's hugely rewarding for me and would you say that that's the best part of academia too because we can all talk about what we do within our departments here but when you can take that elsewhere I think we would all agree that that is the most rewarding I think so too. Like I'm so excited if I ever get to the stage in my research about knowledge mobilization where I can be out there sharing and putting my work into the hands of other people that might be useful or or make a difference or affect change or lead to a teacher's practice shifting. Like that's definitely the part I'm most excited about. I have one last question for you. I know you mentioned that you were going to return to Manitoba and teach halftime there, but and obviously you've expressed major interest in looking at how rural communities compare with urban communities. So what is it about Manitoba? And do you think you're going to stay there 
indefinitely or is it just because you grew up there that you want to make a difference there the most? Well, my family's in Manitoba. I was born in Kenton, Manitoba, and I always kind of laugh and say I'll probably die there too. But in the meantime, I definitely want to get out there and see the world and have some adventures. So no, like, um, it's definitely my home. It always will be. Um, I very much love living in Victoria, though. And even though I'm leaving, you know, in August, it, it isn't goodbye to Victoria either. So I'm, I'm not sure what the future holds, but um, Manitoba will always be home. And community is like, it's so, so important to me. And I, I didn't really value it maybe as much as I could have until I moved to Victoria. And I found out like, oh, like, I don't, I don't have a community anymore. I'm not part of a community and I missed it so much. And in this year, I, I have managed to create my own community and, and circle of friends and contacts and both in the yoga community, school, University of Victoria. But it's really hard to replace like, you know, generations of interconnectedness that you experience in a small town. So I'm looking forward to getting back to that. Well, you mentioned that you wanted to get out there and see the world, but it seems like you've done a lot of that already, <laughs> Devin. Thank you so much for coming in to the show today. Oh, thank you for having me, Maureen. It was a pleasure to talk to you. For interviewee contact information or to listen to this episode again, go to podcasts at cfuv.ca. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Jargon.